the largest donation in the history of the Trump Foundation was $5 million from Vince and Linda McMahon, the wrestling moguls, and now head of the Small Business Administration. Um, <laughs> Linda is. Uh, and so they, about the time that Trump was on WrestleMania in 2007, they gave $5 million, which was m- much more money than the McMahons gave to any other charity and much more money than anybody else had ever given to the Trump Foundation. So there's obviously something there, um, but I can never figure out what it was. The, the, the McMahons always said it was just a, just a charitable gift uh, to this charity whose main purpose was to like, satisfy Trump's social obligations. Um, so I, don't, I never figured that out. I'd still love to. Following the money, that's how Woodward and Bernstein unraveled Watergate in the 1970s. Four decades later, another Washington Post reporter has followed the money to crack another big political story. I'm Michael O'Connell, and you're listening to It's All Journalism. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Michael O'Connell here with the second of our panel discussions that I recorded at the 2017 Association of Alternative News Media's conference here in Washington, D.C., this one's a really great one. It's uh, David Farenthold. He's a national reporter with the Washington Post, and you may have heard of him. He's the uh, one who won the Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of uh, Donald Trump's charitable contributions. Uh, this is a great little discussion, which I think you're really going to enjoy. Political media critic Jack Schaefer is on hand, and he's the one who is interviewing David uh, there's a lot of great information here for people who are interested in political journalism, but also journalism in general. You know, David talks about following the money, uh, tracking a big story uh, with public documents and uh, being transparent. Uh, and also he talks a, a bit about uh, how he used crowdsourcing to help with his story. So there's a lot in here. Uh, I'm going to get out of the way and let you listen to it. Uh, enjoy. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Um, my name is Liz Garrigan. I'm editor of Washington City Paper. Very happy to be hosting all of you. Um, the, the newspaper host, as you, some of you may know, we're supposed to have some duties with coordinating all of this. And so my original thought was um, David would be, David Farenthold, the, uh our hometown boy who just won the Pulitzer for national reporting. Everybody give him a hand. As the... It's a shit prize. As the, as, and uh, Jack, I'm going to get to you. Be quiet. Um, for, he won the Pulitzer for, and I quote, persistent reporting that created a model for transparent journalism and political campaign coverage while casting doubt on Donald Trump's assertions of generosity toward charities. Um, for those of you who have followed his stories, uh, his methodology has been fascinating. He shared a lot of it on Twitter and social media. Um, and so we obviously wanted him to be here today. I thought that we would also have a separate panel of former city paper editors, you know, kibitzing about the heyday or whatever, but that's like herding cats, and so I couldn't make it happen. The only guy I could round up was Jack, who is, um, most of you know Jack, a political writer. He writes a lot about the intersection of politics and media. He's a former city paper editor, somebody I've read for, for most of my adult life, um, and he's a contrarian, sort of a delightful contrarian who, uh, who, not, not true. yeah, he. <laughs> so um, I just wanted to thank these guys for for their time and for coming. We're going to start with David. He's going to talk a little bit about what led to his to his recognition, and and then the two are going to have a hopefully interesting conversation. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you all for having me here. I, I just want to talk briefly and then uh, we'll submit to a grilling from, from Jack. Uh, but I wanted to say, first of all, is anybody here from Seven Days in Burlington? Uh, I love all of your work. I, was, I did a lot of Bernie stories last year and, or two years ago and loved your work about Jane Sanders. But there's one particular piece you guys should go back and look at that impressed me the most, which is that they've been doing a thing called Stuck in Vermont. Uh, it's like a, a video series about tourist attractions, like at ice cream places or state parks or whatever else sponsored by a local boutique hotel chain. I was going back and looking at it. They recently did an, a, an installment of that called Stuck in a Vermonter's Colon, uh, which was, it raised a lot of awareness. Literally, it was what it sounds like. They took the camera that normally went to the ice cream place and put it in someone's colon, uh, and it raised a lot of awareness for, um, 
for colon cancer screenings, but I'm glad that I'm not the person who had to talk to the uh, boutique hotel who sponsored that uh, when they called the next day. So there's a lot of, been a lot of wonderful work, but I wanted to call it that work because it's amazing. I say, wow. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about what I did last year and some sort of lessons I took away from it that I hope are applicable more broadly. Um, to, the brief version of that story was that I had started out the presidential campaign in 2016 back in 2015, and I wanted to cover candidates that you could see up close. I wanted, didn't want to be in a big pack of people following a candidate around. So I basically meant that I covered losers. I covered people you've forgotten were even in the race, like Bobby Jindal. I spent three weeks on a profile of Bobby Jindal. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, Rick Perry. I went to see Rick Perry give a presidential speech, and he literally dropped out in the middle of the speech that I came to see him give. <laughs> so, so by the time we get to, to February 2016, uh, all my candidates that I knew anything about had all dropped out. They were all kaput. And so I didn't have anybody to follow around. It's called the Farenthold curse. <laughs> exactly. So they sent me to Iowa to write a color story about Donald Trump. You know, here's this guy who had been on the cover of Playboy twice. He'd been married three times. He was going to win the state of you know, Mike Huckabee and Rick Santorum, this famously Christian conservative state. Follow him around and see what, it, see what that's like, see what that day is like. And so I happened to be in Waterloo, Iowa with Trump uh, in one of these rallies. And he stops the rally. And he did something really weird. He pulls out... A big check, like a, like a golf tournament-sized check. You could read it from the back of the room. And it said, Donald J. Trump Foundation is the pay, payor. Uh, it was made out to a local veterans charity. And the bottom of the big check said, Make America Great Again, campaign slogan. Uh, so he calls up his local veterans charity, gives them a $100,000 check. They say, oh, aren't you wonderful? You know, see you in the White House. They sit down, and the rally begins again. Now, that caught my attention because I thought it might be illegal. And the answer is it, it is illegal. Uh, you can't use your charity to help your presidential campaign or any sort of campaign. Um, but after that day was over, after Trump narrowly lost the uh, Iowa caucuses, I got interested in sort of the money. Where did that money come from? Um, and it turned out that he had raised the money uh, a couple of days before that. He, if you, you might remember, he had a feud with Fox News, and he held this, uh, he skipped the Fox News-sponsored debate, held this big fundraiser for veterans where he said he raised $6 million, including a million out of his own pocket. That was where the money came from that he was giving away that day. And so I had the question, okay, well, where's the rest of it? What happened to the rest of the $6 million? And I thought this would be a couple-day story. They'd tell me the answer. We'd move on. I'd go back to covering, you know, whoever else. Uh, but it wasn't. It wasn't a, they didn't give me the answer in two days or a month or three months. So it, basically it took me until the end of May just to nail down one part of it, which was the million dollars that Trump said would come out of his own pocket. Um, I couldn't find any evidence. Looking around everywhere I looked, I couldn't find any evidence that anybody had gotten that million dollars. And so finally, Corey Lewandowski, the once and possibly future uh, uh, Trump, top Trump aide, um, called me and said, okay, I can tell you for sure. Um, Donald Trump has given that million dollars away. Uh, but I can't tell you who got the money or when they got it or in what amounts. It's all secret. Um, just take my word for it. And it, it turned out that was a lie. Uh, the money at that point had not been given out at all. It was only after I spent a day searching kind of publicly on Twitter for the evidence that anybody had gotten this million dollars that Trump finally been actually gave it away after he'd been sort of shamed into it. He then gave the money away all in one fell swoop to a friend's charity. So that got me sort of started on the broader question. Okay, if Trump would do this to, uh, to veterans, if he would promise money to veterans in the middle of a presidential campaign, the brightest spotlight they have, and then try to weasel out of that commitment, what was he doing before? What had he been doing his whole life when basically Entertainment Tonight was the only people around who might actually keep, you know, hold him to task if he promised money to charity and didn't give it? That was the start. That's sort of where it all began. And so the... the the thing that I, the lessons that I sort of took away from that process, um, trying to write about one thing, I had the blessing of being able to write about one story day after day in the middle of this sort of swirling tornado of news, you know, where Trump would insult Miss Universe, he'd insult the, uh, the judge in Indiana, he'd have a fight with John McCain, all these things would sort of swirl around, and I'm trying to do one thing underneath it all and keep people's attention. Um, I took away sort of three things from that. If one, the first one is, if you imagine, you know, when I started the Post in 2000, we'd imagine our sort of, you know, typical news customer was somebody who got a cup of coffee, sat down at breakfast with their paper, and, and read the paper. There was nothing else going on, or maybe not much else going on. They were there to consume the news, and you were the only news in front of them. Then, like a few years later, you'd imagine that your news consumer sitting down at their desk with a cup of coffee and sort of shirking work and reading the newspaper online. Um, now, when I imagine somebody who's like our, my reader, you think of somebody who's been like, you've seen in the movies, like somebody's been caught up in a tornado and fired out the other side. Like you just found someone who's been spat out of a tornado. They're confused, you know, they're like, they're sort of disoriented, they're covered in garbage, and, and, uh, 
and they need like the the first thing you need to know is where am I? You know, how do I how do I get orient myself? And so I, one of the things I, I've thought a lot about is how do we give readers a thread to follow, both a thread that you know something they can follow every day that helps keep them attached to your story, but also if they lose the thread, if they get pulled off by the tornado, how do you give them something where they can pick it up and follow it again? Um, so for me, last year I did that in a couple of ways. One, I used a notebook. I, I took my notes on a notebook of all the places I'd been looking for Donald Trump's supposed giving to charity and posting it on social media. Show, show them the notebook. This is, this is the notebook. It's, this a, is not it's, a, it's like a secret technology. <laughs> and it works with a pen or a pencil. Uh, and so even if you, you're paying attention to all this crazy stuff going on, you see me in your timeline. You go, oh, yeah, it's the notebook guy. And I remember what he's doing. You can pick that up and follow it. Uh, and also I tried to create content to do something on the web that would, if you've totally lost the thread and wanted to jump back into it, here's a landing page. It's my notebook digitized. Here's a place for you to see everything that I've found, catch up to all the stories I've done so far in one place. So creating content, just sort of, uh, you know, giving people a thread to follow both by writing, iteratively writing a little bit at a time, and also giving people content that's meant to bring them back into the story once they've lost it. Um, the second thing was about, I think so much of covering Trump, and I think so, this is a, a lesson applicable more broadly, so much of what we're doing now is mapping things. Not always like geographically mapping things, but mapping relationships, mapping promises made and kept, ma mapping changing versions of the story about Russian collusion or the ver changing versions of the healthcare bill, giving people a way to sort of, you know, in confusing stories to follow the developments and place them in the context of what they might have heard earlier. I mean, how many history books begin with like a, a diagram of royal bloodlines or the diagram of, you know, battle, the Gettysburg battlefield, right? We're going to, as we write these stories, we're sort of drawing that map in real time, but we have to present it separately alongside the story so people can orient themselves to what they already know. And the last thing was about being open, you know, showing people what I was doing. And I try to be really open about the questions I was asking and about the uh, things I knew, how I knew the things I knew and the things I didn't know, you know, how people could help me. And I, that was both because I wanted to sort of combat the idea that I was fake news. I wanted people to see how hard I was working to learn what I knew but also because uh, people would just come out of the woodwork and offer help on things that I often like had no idea how to get, didn't think were, were gettable. Uh, one example that kind of came back in the news this week was this thing with the Boy Scouts, okay? 1989, I found this tax document from the Trump Foundation, his charity, um, that said he gave a $7 grant to the Boy Scouts, all right, $7. It was the smallest grant in the history of the Trump Foundation. So you know there's a story there, right? But I don't know what it is. And so I called the Boy Scouts and they wouldn't talk to me. I called Trump and he wouldn't talk to me. And I'm sort of stuck. I thought, okay, well, there's no way in hell I'm going to figure this out. This is just, and it, this has been lost in the midst of history, but wouldn't it be great if I knew? So I just posted on a Twitter, like, hey, look at this weird thing. I don't know what to do with it. And then to watching my Twitter feed after that was like watching in a movie where like James Bond has asked the supercomputer to decode something and you're seeing it be decoded in front of you. All my readers start jumping in, and one guy says, well, it's, uh, maybe it's popcorn. Uh, the Boy Scouts have had a long-running business model of selling terrible, stale popcorn to, people, to people's parents. Uh, and, um, and so how much did a tin of popcorn cost in 1989, the Boy Scout popcorn? So they start tweeting at Trails in Popcorn, which they make the popcorn, they're still around, they're on Twitter. And Trails in Popcorn, some you know, social media intern is like, ah, you know, what's going on? <laughs> and they get back to you and say, no, in 1989, a tin of popcorn cost $5. Okay, we'll throw that out. That wasn't it. Um, and then somebody, one of my readers found like a digitized newspaper from 1989 where they digitized not just the articles, but also the ads. The ads were searchable. And they found an ad. This was like the, you know, the Schenectady paper or something. An ad saying, enroll, it's October 1989, enroll your son in the Boy Scouts. The registration fee for the year is $7. So that's how we figured it out. So Donald Trump, a man who just written a book about how rich he was, had used the charity's money to sign his son up for the Boy Scouts in 1989. And I, like, I didn't know how to look for that. I would never have known how to look for that. And, then, and another example happened recently with this fake Time magazine cover. Um, we spot, I spotted it on the wall at one Donald Trump golf club. Um, but... I want to know where else, you know, a lot of the clubs are private. I want to know where else they put this fake Time magazine cover with himself on the front. And uh, so many people, uh, news outlets and other people who've just been in the club said, oh, yeah, I took a picture of it at the one in Doral. I took a picture of it at the one in Bedminster. Here it is. You know, that kind of thing it would have taken me forever to do, even with the use of stringers. You know, you can do it a day because people want to help. Uh, so those three things, writing iteratively, giving people a thread to follow, mapping out the relationships and sort of creating content that's just about mapping the backstory and then also being open and transparent. Those are things that all really helped me last year and I'm trying to sort of put them in practice for what I covered this year, which is now 
Um, I cover the uh, Trump Organization. It's particularly the wineries, the winery, the golf clubs, and, and Mar-a-Lago. Um, so that, I've reached the pinnacle of the Washington Post uh, hierarchy, getting to cover golf and Palm Beach society. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to put these tools to use to cover this sort of newbie. Um, but anyway, that, so I'll, I'll stop there and submit to questioning. Um, but those are the lessons that I learned, I think. And you will submit. <laughs> um, very happy to be back uh, <clears throat> with my uh, brothers and sisters of uh, Alternative Weeklies. The best work I ever did and the most fun I ever had uh, was running two different alt-weeklies. And um, I still read them wherever I go. And I still read Liz's paper. And I'm on a couple of uh, comp lists. So um, I have, I've great, have great affection uh, for the papers and, and think that they're, they're, they're really, really important. Um, I'd also like to say how happy I am to, and pleased I am to interview David Farenthold, um, except for I'm too consu- consumed with competitive rage and anger and jealousy uh, to say so. Um, uh, what David accomplished was, um, in my mind, um, the sort of pinnacle of alternative newspaper journalism. He just happened to do it for a paper owned by the world's richest for, man. Well, for five minutes today. He's back to second. Okay. Um, what, when David was doing this piece, it reminded me a lot of what it was like to be the editor of City Paper during the, uh, the uh, reign of uh, Marion Barry, where we could never get our calls returned. Um, it was a city that was in absolute chaos. It was, you know, vying with other municipalities as, as murder city number one. And they would no sooner return our calls um, then shoot themselves in the head. They would uh, the pre- that when we dumped uh, delivered newspapers to the, what is the city hall? What was the city hall? Uh, they would end up in the dumpster. And so when I was reading David's work, and I saw that um, they weren't the, the Trump organization either wouldn't talk to him or they would lie. I thought this reminds me a lot of what it was like to report on Marion Barry. And as I followed his work very closely um, and, and sobbed each night in, in, in jealousy, was that he, he seemed to be applying many of the techniques that lots of us had to do. We're not the daily. We don't, uh, we don't necessarily strike beer into, into, the, into, the, in, into the corporation or the institution or the government um, until we really get the goods on him. And so he, he was remarkably resourceful. And I, I just thought that that um, uh, except for the fact that he won a, a trophy room full of prizes, he was just counting the number of prizes that he won for this series, and he had out in the lobby and had to take off his shoes and socks <laughs> to count all of them, um, that there were great lessons there of, of how to be resourceful, how to keep on um, uh, uh, kicking the, the door down, enlisting readers, um, which I found um, remarkable, and using this secret technology of uh, the good old-fashioned uh, pencil and, and, and phone call and, and spreading, spreading the net. Um, so I, I, uh, I, uh, my, my hat's off to the guy. Um, I was wondering if, um, in, in all of your reporting, how much you talked to Trump directly about, about his, um, his, his unique, unique uh, relationship with philanthropy. Once. Uh, I, not for lack of trying, um, but there was, I, I mentioned that Lewandowski uh, had called and told me this lie that Trump had given away a million dollars when he hadn't. We found out that it was a lie because Trump called me. I'd spent this day sort of searching on Twitter, trying to find anybody who'd gotten even a dollar of the money. And then finally, at the end of the day, I found nothing. I felt like I'd wasted this day. Social media was a big waste of time. Um, Trump called me and he said, okay, I've given this, you know, I've given this million dollars away now. And I said, well, you know, why... Why now? You said four months ago that you were going to give it, and then Corey said three days ago you'd already given it. You know, why only give it tonight? And he said, well, I had to vet the group that I gave it to. And it, it happened to be that I knew that this group he, that, gave, that he gave the money to, they had given him like a Lifetime Achievement Award the year before at the Waldorf Astoria. It was a whole gala dedicated to just sucking up to Donald Trump. And they gave him a biggest, and I said, after that? You spent a whole night with those guys? And they, you know, they gave you an award, you, have to, you still had to vet them this year? And he said, oh, yeah, that's true. And then I said, well, you know, did you just give this money away now because I was asking about it? And uh, he said, oh, he called me a nasty guy. Oh, you're so nasty. You should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> it, was, it was a really strange interview, um, both for what, what happened then and what happened later. So what happened then was um, 
uh, Trump would say, like, oh, you're a nasty guy, you should, you should be ashamed of yourself. I'm like, I'm not going to argue about that, right? Like, I don't care what he thinks of me as a person. But there are other questions I wanted to answer. He still had a bunch of other people's money that they had given him to give away that he was still sitting on. And so I, would, I was like, okay, well, I've got him on the phone. I need to find that out. Like, okay, so what happened to this other $3 million people gave you you haven't given away? And he would, like, reset. He would, he would insult me, insult me, insult me, and then reset and say, well, you know, he would answer that question sort of semi-factually in a normal tone of voice. And then that answer would devolve into insults again. And then I would ask another factual question. He would reset again. It's like his heart wasn't really in it. Like, he wanted to insult me, but he didn't really, couldn't really keep, he wasn't mad. I, I have the same feeling about David. <laughs> and then, so... Then later on, our editor, um, what, he banned this. A few, week, a few days later, he banned the post from uh, going to his events and standing in the press pool, uh, which was a huge hardship for a lot of people, but not for me because I didn't cover his events. Uh, and our editor went to go talk to him, and Trump, uh, and the editor later played this tape for him, which I didn't know for months existed, where Trump sort of said something about me. He's like, oh, I thought he was a nice guy, but he turned out to be a killer. And I'm not going to get the exact words right, but it was something like, and I said, you know, F that, I'm never talking to him again. And if I'd only known that, I called his people like 100,000 times after that, having not known that Trump had told my editor he'd never talk to me again. So um, and I got to talk to some of his people, but I never talked to him after that day, which was like in late May of 2016. And still haven't talked to him since then. Do you think he talked now? No. No. Because what's, what's remarkable is that during the campaign, I work at Politico now, and during the campaign, um, practically everybody who covered the Trump campaign or wrote about the Trump campaign would either get a call from Trump or be able to place a call to Trump. He was very, very accessible. And I thought that uh, when he cut David off and cut the post off, I thought it was like one of the first tells of, of Trump's um, idea of philanthropy, Trump's attitude towards money, Trump's attitude towards accountability. Um, that he realized he probably already said too much. And the trouble with philanthropy, it creates a paper trail. And so you, you, know, you were like an alt-weekly, um, I hate, hate to keep on coming back to that, but you were basically frozen out. You didn't have access journalism. You didn't have leaks from within the Trump organization and, 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 and his philanthropies. Um, you basically had to um, uh, saddle up and, and follow paper and and develop sources and pants him, um, which which was was pretty remarkable. What do you think? What sort of? Um, I know that you followed all weeklies in, in the cities you've lived in. Um, if somebody wanted to do the Fernthold miracle with the the, um, the 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 tablet and win a bunch of awards, um, what do you think? In, in, and philanthropy has always been a very rich um, investigative yeah. area because. There are lots of laws, lots of rules, practically no enforcement. You basically they have to spot like the president of the foundation taking wheelbarrows of money out the front door in broad daylight, um, nude, in order for them to prosecute. <laughs> um, so it's, it's the, the 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 fraud is rampant. And I would just when I was looking at your piece, I, I just thought if a guy like Trump can get away with what he's gotten away with. Uh, what's it say about other philanthropies? And, and maybe you know just a, a sort of workshop advice of. Of, of how you could replicate the Farenthold miracle back in, in at these at these papers. Well, I mean, philanthropy I had never really covered before, but it's nice in that there's actually quite a lot of documentation. The IRS and usually your state agency produces a lot of documents that, uh, at least in the Trumps case, they had filled out for years uh, and not really ever thought anyone was going to look at them. So if you you know there's these things that have been public for years that actually had like really interesting details in them uh, that no one had gone back and looked at. Um, so I think philanthropy is a fascinating thing. It, actually, City Paper just did, did, the Washington City Paper just did a story about a guy. I don't know how you pronounce his name. Finnis Jones, uh, who is like a amazing operator in D.C. Who's like very close to the mayor, and he has a bunch of nonprofits that get city money. And the latest story is about how he's going to start a church. Uh, because if you think nonprofits are not well policed, churches are not policed at all. Um, and so that to me is like such a. It is, it, I didn't realize it was such a great ground for scams. And I. I one of the things I thought at the beginning of this was when you know I told you how I was so so, so sure that it was illegal because he was using his, his charity to help his um, campaign, and I called somebody at the IRS, a guy who an ex IRS employee, and he said, "Oh yeah, that's illegal," and I was like, "I got it, you know, that's it, it's over." And uh, and then the guy said, "Well, but we never prosecute that, you know, we never. If we and if we did, 
I mean, it, it was like a, a par you know a parody of government functioning. It's like, well, even if we took it seriously, it would be assigned to an agent next fall, and then that agent would work on it for a year, and then it would go to his boss for another year. Uh, I mean, the whole thing is run on the honor system, and um, Trump has always been pretty good from the way he plays golf to the way he's acting as president. He's always been very good at finding honor systems and exploiting them. You know, where the actual there's a huge difference between what people do because they feel peer pressure to act right and what you you are compelled to do. He tries to fill the you know to go all the way from what's acceptable to what he's compelled to do. Um, so I think there's a lot of characters out there like like that and. The paper trail was a great. That actually is a good paper trail to start with. So, would you would you look at the audits or the the filings for a, a philanthropy? Would you uh, would you would you look for the sources uh, sources of money? What would what sort of workbook ideas would you have? Well, I mean, the place to start with any any charity is going to be the, uh, ProPublica has a fantastic. It's called an IRS Form 990, which is the it's the main IRS tax filing. ProPublica has, and Foundation Center have great 990 filings and. So I, would, I looked that up, and sometimes it's, there's nothing that's obvious in there. Like they're, you know, they're, they're paying the, you know, they take in a million dollars a year, and they pay the CEO nine hundred ninety-nine thousand. And by law, they have to allow you to come to their premises and look at their nine ninety. Right. You, I mean, you can request it, but you can also demand in their offices to look at it and spend as much time as you want to with it. Yes, that's right. And uh, and so sometimes the things are obvious, but sometimes they're not. Um, in the case of Trump. You had to. You know, he listed all the, the donations he'd given out. You know, I gave donations to this charity, this charity, this charity, and, um, and the dollar amounts. And you had to call those charities and to find out what the money was for. I mean, it, so in a couple of cases, like he bought giant portraits of himself uh, and counted those as charitable donations. He bought uh, a Tim Tebow helmet for like twelve thousand dollars. <laughs> this to me is people say that Donald Trump has great business acumen. So Tim Tebow. He, he bought a Tim Tebow sign helmet. The Tebow was with the Broncos playing really well a few years ago. He bought it for $12,000 literally on the night that Tim Tebow's football career was ending. He was playing the Patriots in the playoffs and they got massacred, like 50 to 3. And the, the value of that helmet, as soon as he bought it, dropped to like $30. Uh, so uh, but, but it gives you a, a map of at least who, what other organizations, who's involved in this charity and what other organizations it does business with. Um, I found it very useful covering um, Mar-a-Lago and the golf courses because a lot of their business is uh, charity events. Mar-a-Lago has a lot of charity balls and fun luncheons, and a lot of the golf courses have charity tournaments. And if you look at the charities 990s, you can see what they paid Trump to, um, to have their event at his charity ball or golf course. So unlike covering a business where sometimes you get no information at all or very little information, charities actually have to release a lot of information and they don't seem that afraid of enforcement, so they, that, they usually will put stuff out there that if you dig just a little bit, you can find out a lot. What price did Trump pay for basically being pantsed by you? Besides uh, winning the presidency. <laughs> and, and do you consider that a personal failure? Uh, well, he is under investigation by the New York Attor Attorney General for uh, misusing his charity. The charity is effectively shut down now. It can't take in new money. It can't spend. It can't give money away. Um, Eric's foundation, because of what some great stuff that Fortune did, um, Eric Trump's foundation, which looked more legitimate than his father's, is under investigation as well. Uh, I do not feel like it's a personal failing that Trump got elected. I felt like at the end of it, you know, this is a guy who spent a whole lifetime creating a facade about who he was, and there's a lot of dimensions to that facade. He's good at golf. You know, he hits all the whole, you know, every course there's a plaque saying Donald Trump hit the first hole in one there. Um, but one of the things that he got, you know, about what a rich person in America ought to be, like a really, like a Bruce Wayne rich kind of person, was that you had to be charitable. You had to be charitable and it's sort of spontaneously charitable and lavishly charitable in a way that matched the lavishness of your wealth. He saw that was part of the persona that he was expected to occupy if he was going to be like a, you know, playboy billionaire. And so he, he knew he had to play that role and he got a lot of credit for having played that role, but he never, when time came to actually live up to it, he, ne he almost never did. Um, I thought people people that paid attention learned a lot about his character from that. But there was a lot else going on in the election, so you know I don't take it as a personal failing that um, that he got elected. Um, your follow-up work on the, the the charity events staged at Mar-a-Lago have served as a sort of deterrent, could we say, or or has made many of the foundations and charities who run events there um, uh, withdraw or question their own their own uh, the sensibility of, of staging when it. At, Mar-a-Lago. It's hard to know. I mean, one of the things we found is that charities um, at Mar-a-Lago, people that are members at Mar-a-Lago, known Trump a long time, they love Trump, they live in kind of a weird bubble like he does. 
I, as an aside about Palm Beach, um, one of the things I learned about Palm Beach is that there's a particular kind of men's velvet slipper that is like it's like rubber soled because you never really walk in the dirt when you're in Palm Beach. You're always going from like golf cart to mansion to Mar-a-Lago. It's a men's velvet slipper, and they get things embroidered on the front, like a, either like a Harvard symbol, or there's one where it's like a screw on one foot, and then the Monopoly man with his pockets turned down, and the other one, which is screw poverty. Um, they're $800, $800 slippers that you could buy at Kmart for $30. I feel like if Bernie Sanders had just gone around showing people those slippers last year, we would have had like a Bolshevik revolution in this country. Not only would we be president, we would have redistributed wealth already. Anyway, um, so Palm, Palm Beach is... Uh, so I... But so there's a real like lack. People and people at Mar-a-Lago, the members often don't seem to have changed their opinion about Trump, no matter what he said during the campaign or what he's been like as president. But what we're finding is a, the, there's some charities that do events there, and that's a big part of his, his business there is charity events. The charity is not run by the people in Palm Beach, like they're local liaisons, but it's attached to Dana Farber Cancer Center in Boston, or it's attached to Basket Palmer Eye Center in Miami. There's people who are accountable to structures outside Palm Beach that care a lot about whether they are going to be associated with Donald Trump. And by calling those people, we've seen the number of them have started to pull out. It's going to be the worst year for charity events at Palm Beach in Mar-a-Lago in like 10 years next year. Um, so that's been really interesting. <laughs> not because of me. But the, the, the hard part about that story, not, I don't know if it's the hard part or not, but I went from this high of like, I won the Pulitzer Prize, everyone's saying what a great journalist I am, there's a reporter in Palm Beach for the Palm Beach Daily News. So not the Palm Beach Post, the Palm Beach, the shiny sheet. It's just for Palm Beach Island. Shannon Donnelly, she's the gossip columnist. She owns that beat, and she owns me. Every time I'm after something, she beats me to the punch. And so it's been a real like lesson in humility. Like you know, No matter how hard I try to get the answers on these things, why did this charity leave? Is it going to leave? She has it first. So the only thing to do is to be nice and, uh, and just give her credit. Um, anyway, it's been fun. That, that part has been fun to get to know that world. I, I have one last question, then we'll turn over to the crowd here. Um, you, uh, you put your own safety at risk in the reporting of this story. Um, you were shot with a glitter gun. Can you talk, <laughs> about, can you talk about that? Um, in the eye. In the eye, yeah. One night, uh, so I, I, t- I told you that... Um, that the Trump, I got Trump to give away the million dollars, and I felt really good about myself. I, and I, he, he had this press conference at Trump Tower. People might remember he lashed out at the media for making him give away the rest of the $6 million and account for the money. And he looked like on the defensive. And everyone, you know, so I went up to Trump Tower to see this press conference, and everybody, you know, I read all the press and saying, you know, this is a turn to corner. The media is going to be tougher on Donald Trump now. They're not going to get him, let, let him get away with, you know, falsehoods. Um, and I felt pretty good about myself. And I came home. I like got, got home late that night from New York, and I just felt great. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna keep the good going. I'm gonna clean up the house. The house. I have two little kids. Like the house is a mess. I'm gonna start cleaning up the house. And there was this glitter gun on the sofa, and I bought it. I, I can't spread the. I can't distribute the blame. I bought this for my daughter at the supermarket, and she wanted it. And it's, it's aimed at four-year-olds, and it's. Uh, Brightly colored, and I thought that it would you'd squeeze the trigger, and on the it looks very festive on the package. When you squeeze the trigger, like some glitter would come out, like a little puff of air, and some. Okay, so I pick it up, and I'm like, ah, I wonder if it's loaded. And like Wiley e. Coyote, or like El- uh, Elmer Fudd, I look down the barrel of a gun, and it looks empty. And I then I it's a, like a revolver. There's a there's a there's a you know you you put the uh, the thing in the middle and it rotates. Then I I pulled the trigger. And so pulling the trigger causes the, the, the it, it rotates a new round into the chamber and fires it all in one motion. And so I shot this gun at about like that, right into my eye. And it wasn't just a puff of air, it was a cap gun. It, like, so like all of a sudden I smell gunpowder, there's like a flash of light. I thought I'd shot my eye out, but I really might have if I wasn't wearing my glasses. So I, I go upstairs, my wife is like brushing her teeth, about to go to bed, and I'm like, ah, I shot myself in the eye, I'm covered in glitter. My head's all swollen up. My face is all swollen up. Actually, I went to the Georgetown emergency room. And, uh, uh, yeah, I had to explain that to a doctor. So, um, yeah, anyway, I've survived. D- David will be the first person to win a Pulitzer and a Darwin Award <laughs> in the same year. Listen, if I save one eye as a result of my story, that's all I care about. David, one eye, Farenthold, <laughs> will now take your questions. Um, do we have any questions from the crowd? Sir? What is your, uh, you guys have a pretty big data operation. Well, so first of all, it wasn't the only. I also had a Google Doc, um, so I, the, the legal pad was 
note taking, but also a prop uh, because I was really afraid I was going to spill coffee on it or something and ruin it. So I had a Google Doc to make things sortable and stuff like that. So, but they hated it. They really did not like it. They didn't like that I was showing people that you could keep you could keep notes on paper. Um, the, the first day that I did it, I went over to tell our social media people. I was like, hey, listen, I wrote this list on a piece of paper, and I'm going to take a picture of it. And they looked at me like I was the dumbest person alive. They were like, that's the least compelling like, concept Like someone ever. would shoot themselves in the Yeah, right. I hadn't even done that. I actually had just done that. Um, maybe that was why. But they were so appalled. But to me, the thing about that was it looked like work. You know, people could tell that like, if you didn't know much about journalism, you could tell, okay, this is a... This man has written a lot of words, you know? He's done something. And also it stood out. Like in your timeline of a bunch of other stuff, like there was nothing that looked like this. And so if you were scrolling along, you'd stop and see this and recognize it. Um, like that was kind of like dumb luck that I tried it and people responded to it. Um, but it was good. It was a good, for me, it was, a, it was a reminder of what I was doing every day. And it was a way to show people incremental progress. And also to show the Trump people, like, look, Here's how dedicated I am to finding your guy gave money away. You know, I'm not I'm not trying to prove a negative that he didn't give money away. I'm trying to prove positive that he is he did give money away. I just haven't found it yet. So here's where I've looked. Tell me where to you know where else to look. Um, and I, I thought that was really key to the fact that they weren't the Trump people weren't responding to me at all. It was key for me to show his supporters like look how much I'm doing to try to to try to tell his side of the story. Another question, sir. How do you? Uh... It, it did get boring at times. Uh, it was, the thing that was good for me was that um, his way of giving money away often lended itself to, to sort of like weird wackiness. You know, and it, I think if it had been – when I saw the Trump Foundation 990s originally and I saw all these lists of gifts, you know, it doesn't say what the gift is for. Obviously, it just says the charity and the money. And I thought like – I'm sure these are just gifts, right? Like, you know, he gave you $10,000 to this charity because he likes their work and he thinks it's good. But no, after I made a few phone calls, I really, there was always a story. Like, he was always like, you know, my buddy Jack Schaefer's getting, a, getting an award, but I don't really want to go, so I'll pay for a table so they don't, you know, I don't have to actually go to it. Or like, he bought a Tim Tebow helmet. Or there was just enough of those things where like every 10 or 15 ones, there'd be some strange story associated with it you could tell. Um, so that they were, there was weird enough that there were there were stories along the way that you could tell. Sometimes it did get boring. My honestly, my biggest fear was not that I would get bored; was that like after like three hundred phone calls, I would find somebody he'd given ten million dollars to, you know, and then I'd have to pack it up and move on. You know, that after a while, you know, the first few weeks of it, I really that was my fear was that like I was giving him a raw deal by doing this, when, you know, when really. I was going to stumble on some, some, you know, some evidence that he'd really been a big philanthropist. And so then we'd write a story saying, okay, we found the evidence. Let's move on. I'd write about Ted Cruz or whatever. Um, and so and as I started doing this, people, started coming to, people would come to me. And once they figured out that I was doing this and say, like, oh, I know Donald Trump gave money to this or that. And the, you know, the first few times I was like, oh, man, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the end. You know, I found the money. And after all those things didn't pan out, like it eventually got to the end when people called me and said, oh, you know, I know Donald Trump gave money to this. In my head, I would be like, I know you're wrong, but I want to know why, you're, why you think you're right. You know, I know there's a great story there about him promising money to somebody and never paying it. So those actually were some of the best stories sometimes that he had promised money to people and never, and never gave it. One of my favorite stories about dealing with Trump supporters was there was a guy, um, Michael Caputo, who's a big Trump supporter, uh, in Florida, and he uh, on Twitter one night, like in August of last year, he was like, "I know where Donald Trump gave money, but you're—I'm not going to tell you because you're—you know—you hate Donald Trump and you won't report it. You won't report it honestly. So I know he gave money away, but I'm not going to tell you where he where he went." And he was very like angry and vulgar. And so instead of being like, you know, I, so I was like, "This is an opportunity for me to show people how how open I am." And so I was like, "Oh, you know, tell me more. I'm so excited. Thanks for thanks for you know contacting me." And, you know, and he's like, no, no, you'll never listen. So finally I got to the point where I was like, all right, I'm going to guess a letter. Is there an M in your charity? Is there an R in your charity? And he finally, he finally after that, he told me the name of the charity. And it turned out to be a charity that I had called like three months earlier and Trump had never given them any money. And anyway, so I was like, well, you know, didn't work out, but thank you. You've done so much more than the Trump campaign has. You've given me a lead to follow. You know, I'm so grateful for that. And it was like, he was so angry that he, we hadn't had a fight that he like then sent me a direct message on Twitter and was like, you're a horrible person, you know, screw you, because I, I, I wouldn't have this sort of confrontation with him. That sort of stuff happened enough that it kept me interested. 
one of the one of the things about David's work is that it I really enjoy the way that it broke the fourth wall. I'm a big um, uh, an avid fan of newspaper journalism and uh, the history. And, and you go back 100 years or even 50 years ago, newsrooms were much more accessible places. You didn't have to go through somebody's phone mailbox to get to them or call their ID. In many places, you could just show up at the newspaper and say, yeah, I want to talk to Farenthold. And Farenthold would, the, the Farenthold of your, his father would come out and talk to you. And the, um, the reader was, was invited along on the investigation. I mean, David didn't ask anybody to do his work for him. He was doing most of the work. But he was saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm packing my bags, and I'm, I'm getting in the station wagon, and I've got some glitter guns, and I'm going to go out and track this story down. And so he really broke the fourth wall. And I found, as, um, as a grizzled old contrarian, that, that I was rooting for him and that I wanted to be a part of this. Uh, never gave him any tips, but um, I tried to discourage him on Twitter. <laughs> um, and, and the readers, readers really engaged that serial. And it, it was um, uh, it's part of newspaper lore that if you've got a big story, you never break it, everything all at once. That, that if you can stretch it out over a week and then top it, and then that digs up more sources and top it again, um, the, readers, you, the readers become putty in your hands. And, and that's what happened with, with David's story. It was, like, it was unlike anything else in, in the campaign coverage um, enlisted readers' interest and um, wildly entertaining and, uh, dare say, uh, important. There's a question, Liz. Uh, David, I'm just curious. Uh, I know Marty Barron's a busy guy. He's got a lot, a lot on his plate. But was he? Did he get like really excited? Did, how much did he work with you? And also, as an addendum, do you ever see city paper on his desk? Uh, <laughs> you know, I've I've only been in Marty's office once. I really try to stay out of there, so I can't tell you for sure. Um, but he did, he played, a, the, the biggest impetus he had in this story, the biggest impact was after that veteran's story that I told you about, like where he, he promised the money to veterans that didn't give it. Marty, I like stopped him in the, you know, stopped me in the hallway one day when we were, we were going home after some long night covering a debate. And he said, you know, you know, we should look more. We should look at his whole history. We should look at the Trump Foundation going back. Like this is not, this can't be an isolated incident. And really pushed me to look, you know, further back. Um, so he had that, he had, that was a huge sort of turning point in the story. So he had that impact. Um, and on, this is not exactly the, ch the charity coverage, but on Access Hollywood Day, uh, when we got that story, it was a crazy scramble to go from getting the tip at 11 a.m. to publishing at 4, and Marty really helped quarterback all that, dealing with all the lawyers and everything else. Uh, Lee Schreiber is going to come back as Marty Barron in the movie of this story. Who's going to play you? The Rock. <laughs> <laughs> More questions? Back there. Well, so here's two things that, I, that I'm interested in. Um, one is about how well it's doing, right? How well the organization it's as a business is doing. Because we know it's highly levered. We know it doesn't have a lot of, you know, a lot of these places are, you know, he bought them using debt. Uh, they don't, and there are a lot of them, you know, you know of the Trump Hotel in D.C., you know about Mar-a-Lago, places that, like, you know, you can basically pay for access to the presidency or access to, to people who know the president. But there's a lot of other places, you know, where there's not really any connection to the president, right? If you go to the Trump Hotel in Chicago and pay $200 for a night in a hotel, you're not going to see the president. He's never going to know you did that. There's not really, unless you do it at a huge scale, there's no way to do that as a mechanism for influencing him. So you, you have to just want to do it, right? And so much of his business is built on just regular customers and also on special events. So you're going to have to want your charity golf tournament, your wedding or whatever to happen in a place you know, that, that's tied to him. And so if those, that business starts going away, you know, if maybe it doesn't hurt overall, but maybe there's some golf course particularly that starts running out of money, you know, what happens then? What do they do? Uh, you saw that the, Don and Eric have this plan to expand the hotel chain, which is really interesting. The ProPublica did a really amazing story about this. This is their idea. They're going to build a yuppie hipster hotel in Cleveland, Mississippi. Um, which is a place that's like on the Blues Trail. It's a, it's a tourist destination, but it's not very big, and it does not have a lot of hipsters. Um, and so we were like, well, wh why? That doesn't make any sense. Like, that sounds like a stupid decision. And um, we didn't understand it until the ProPublica story, which is just that, like, it wasn't like they did a Don and Eric. They didn't do, like, a search of the whole country looking for, like, where's the underserved market? Where would be perfect place to put our new hipster hotel? They met a guy 
who was a donor in Mississippi. And it was, we were introduced by the governor of Mississippi. He was a big Trump fan. And that guy was like, oh, wait, these people might buy my hotel, you know? And uh, so if they're making business decisions like that, like what's the Trump organization going to be like in a year and two years? And what, how would that affect the president if it starts to fail? Um, the other side, obviously, is how is he using the, um, the government to help his business? So um, right now I'm doing, and I encourage you guys to do too, and, and tweet it at me if you do it, foying how all the, you know, what government agencies are starting to have their trainings at Trump hotels, you know, or their meetings with, you know, stakeholders at Trump hotels, what uh, governors around the country or attorneys general who want to suck up to Trump are coming to the Trump hotel when they are in Washington so they can say, hey, I stayed at your, motel, your hotel last night. The uh, Portland Press-Herald in Maine had this great story about LePage, Governor LePage up there, who his... He won't tell them how, how much money he spent at the Trump Hotel, but just his security detail spent like $27,000 there just in the last six months. Um, so, you know, does the Trump Organization go from like a luxury golf and hospitality business? It just Does it get converted basically into like an emoluments business where it just takes money from people who want to influence the president and the rest of it kind of lags? That's what I'm interested in, and it's hard. It's harder even than the charity to figure out what's going on there. Um, but it, it's really, it's been a really interesting thing to try to get inside. I rarely do. Uh, I used to do it a lot on the Hill when I was a Hill reporter, just because it was hard to take notes too. But I now I transcribe interviews on, like I, you know, transcribe them in real time on um, just on Microsoft Word. I don't tape record them usually. I mean, almost all the stuff I've done has been phone interviews, so I don't have a setup to, t- to tape record phone interviews. What's the kind of stuff if you that the Post wouldn't let you say that if you were writing for city papers, you would? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, he's not good enough to work at city paper. It's true. <laughs> I felt like they gave me. A, here's what I think about covering Trump. There's so much that's said about him. By you know, there's no lack of sort of heated rhetoric about Trump. To me, the, the thing that you have to keep in mind in writing is people who are reading your stuff for the first time, who either like Trump or don't have an opinion about him, who are, you don't want to, I don't want to say anything in my stories that it's, it's going to make you turn away, you know, that's going to make you say, well, this guy hates Donald Trump, I'm not going to read anymore. You know, even, like, the goal obviously is not to convince people to hate Donald Trump, but if you're going to change people's minds, they have to convince themselves, right? They have to feel like they've, they've seen a fair picture and they're changing their own minds. So... I felt like with him, I was really trying to like you know let the story tell itself, and all, usually there were good stories. Um, so you know the the I, we have to keep in mind. I think I have to keep in mind so much about this new audience: people who are like terrified or excited or whatever. They're reading national politics stories in a way that they wouldn't have four years ago. Um, I don't want to lose them, um, and I, I find even reading stories sometimes myself that people lose me if I'm like oh, this, this sounds like you just went into whack Trump, and you know you're not. You haven't got telling me anything new. And if you had something new, you'd tell me in the first five graphs instead of writing what a jerk Trump is. Um, so I'm trying to be as restrained as I can. Um, I don't know if that's working or not or if it's getting more people, but I, I feel like that's the, that's the way to do it with him because otherwise it's, you, can't, you can't be hyperbolic about him, right? He's sort of a hyperbolic person, so you, you want to sort of be as understated as you can. <laughs> Two things. One, people really like, you know, they make movies about reporters. Right? People like the hunt. They like the thing, that, you know, the thing that we find exciting about it, like you know, solving a mystery, you know, hunting something down, digging something up. People like that. There's a reason why we like it, and they want to... So people like following it along. You, know, you don't have to be solving murders um, to do that. You, you just try and, like, people like that sense of like, there's a mystery, and now we've figured it out. So I think people liked it for that reason. But I did feel like I wanted to broadcast almost in like, a corny sense how open I was, you know, that I'm not prejudging people, I'm not here to mock anybody. And that's what social media was good for, like, to show people, like, here's how open I am to, to other, the other side of the story and how excited I am just to get any sort of knowledge, you know, any sort of news. And, I mean, that's not going to win over Donald Trump himself. I mean, there's people who are, you know, for, and y- y'all know them too, there's people who are paid to, to um, work against you, paid to keep the truth from, from coming to light. And you can't, you can't win over those people, but I feel like it, it, it brought people along with the stories and made them trust the outcome more. Um, and, you know, so if you did eventually call them, you know, they, they can look back at your work and feel like you're not out to get them. Of the many things I admired about David's work is that it was completely reproducible. It wasn't um, based on anonymous sources or, or documents that, that he hadn't seen. It wasn't based on rumor or scuttlebutt or innuendo. And, you know, by publishing his stuff so transparently on, and on the Magic Tablet, um, he basically showed 
what you can you can you can you can go bake this cake yourself. You're going to come up with the you know the the same French roll that I've I've uh, produced in my oven. <laughs> question back there. Yeah, this question is for both of you. Uh, David first. Is the pizza? <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear your question. You wait. Uh, the, the is P- the P tape real? And yes, yes, there is a P tape of David Bernthold. <laughs> and that's all I'm going to say. Uh, I have no idea. I sit next to the people who um, cover the Trump-Russia story, and they, like a lot of people in the media, spent a lot of last year you know, puzzling over that tip, that dossier, and trying to independently verify it and not being able to do it. I don't know, I don't know what the truth is there. Uh, so I, I will not venture an opinion. And the, piece, the, the, yeah, the piece that Jack has of me, I've paid him a lot of money, uh, so hopefully it will never come to light. Uh, room 502, we're going to restage it and reshoot it. <laughs> I brought Daryl Montgomery, a fine videographer who's going to um, uh, document it, and then um, it'll be in your uh, gimme bag when you leave the convention, <laughs> so make sure to pick up the David Varenthold piece. Sure. You know, I, I have to say really well. Um, we, you know, when, when Bezos bought us, so two things happened before, you know, like around 2012, they said they were going to sell the post building, uh, you know, that we'd been for so long. The Grant family was going to sell it. And we had two years to find a new place to move. And um, then the, you know, the expectation was like, We'll move by the bus station. Maybe we'll move to like an abandoned Walmart in Gaithersburg, or you know, none of the options were good. Um, and uh, then Bezos bought us, and you know, I knew Bezos. I knew his name. I knew he was, you know. But I, the stories I had read about Amazon were the stories about the fulfillment centers. You know, people work so hard, and you know, there's no air conditioning, things like that. Even Amazon corporate headquarters. New York Times had that story about, you know, people like, you know, when you go into the bathroom, there's a guy in the next stall like typing on his laptop. Um, so we didn't know what to expect at all. I mean, we the Graham family had owned the paper the whole time. I, I've been there, but since the since the '30s, um, and so we just didn't know what what that would be like. Um, and he's done. A, I mean, obviously, he's given us money, which is wonderful, and we've been able to hire a whole bunch of new people. Uh, the thing that that I'm hap- most happy about was the technological side of it. There were just some problems that I think we just didn't recognize were problems or didn't think were solvable problems uh, that were about delivering the product to people who read it online. Um, and he really went after that. I mean, just as a very basic example, load time. When you start, when you, like, you know, go to WashingtonPost.com, it would take seven or eight seconds to load up because we had all these, this, I don't know, I'm not going to pretend like I know what it was, but there was something that was making it go slowly. And, you know, seven or eight seconds, people, you know, you know, people would just turn it off, go to the next, go to the New York Times. So they, they attacked that. They did, they did things like that to try to, they did a lot of thinking about how to get people to subscribe digitally. We now are in the like, uh, you know, mother load of digital advertising. We've actually gotten some watch ads. Ads for watches. That is like, I didn't know this was a thing, but apparently, like you always wonder why does the New York Times put out like a twice yearly magazine that's just a bunch of pictures of watches? And like, who, who cares about that? That's where the money is, the watches. So we've now gotten a few watch ads. Um, and so the, the, that part of it, like understanding it, the, the tech, this, how to be a web business that he brought, I think has been more valuable than anything. So I have to say I have nothing but good things to, good things to say. I got to meet him for like 10 minutes earlier this year. I, when you win the Pulitzer Prize, I got to meet, that was my prize. I got to meet Bezos for 10 minutes, and he was impressive, very nice, and I don't think I spilled coffee on myself can, or screwed up at all. Can you do the Jeff Bezos laugh? No. No. It's sort of like a hyena. It's a it's really remarkable it's laugh. A, it's, a, it's a very distinctive it's laugh. Piercing. It's piercing. <laughs> More questions. I, I, I can, I'm, I'm sure I would be allowed to do it, but I would not, I would not do it justice. But Bezos has a pretty thick skin, though. I think he does. Yeah. yeah. Ma'am. Um, it seems to me that why the ones he created are not are, you know, the money is Yes. We, so we got lucky. Normally, um, on your IRS Form 990s, you don't have to publicize the page that has money coming in. 
But as part of their general unsophistication about charities, they didn't know that, and so they, they published the page that had money coming in. Um, so in general, it was, it was not his money. He hadn't given any money since 2008 to his foundation. People that got money from the Trump Foundation assumed it was his money, but it really wasn't. Um, there were some mis- so there were some mysteries about who, what the sources of money. Some of them I solved and some of them I didn't. The biggest mystery I didn't solve was uh, the largest donation in the history of the Trump Foundation was $5 million from Vince and Linda McMahon, the wrestling moguls and now head of the Small Business Administration. Um, <laughs> Linda is. Uh, and so they, about the time that Trump was on WrestleMania in 2007, they gave $5 million, which was m- much more money than the McMahons gave to any other charity and much more money than anybody else had ever given to the Trump Foundation. So there's obviously something there, um, but I can never figure out what it was. The, the, the McMahons always said it was just a, just a charitable gift uh, to this charity whose main purpose was to like, satisfy Trump's social obligations. Um, so I, don't, I never figured that out, and I'd still love to. Um, one that I was very proud of figuring out was um, there's a guy named Richie Ebers, E-B-E-R-S, who was like a ticket broker in New York. Um, you know, like if you wanted to get the best, it was like not a scalper on the street, but kind of like that. Like if you wanted a really, really high-end seats to the Knicks or you wanted to like sit courtside and then get to go shake hands with the Knicks afterward, this is a guy who sort of made that happen. And he would give these donations to the Trump Foundation every year. He was always the biggest donor. And his donations were never even numbers. They were always like $551,212. So you know there's a story there. It's a percentage of something. And we went on and on and on trying to figure out what it was and finally figured it out which was that um, Trump has tickets to things. He has a box at the U.S. Open for tennis. He has, I think he has t- seats at the Mets Stadium. And he was basically selling them to this guy who would then sell them on to clients. And that guy, Trump would say, well, no, don't pay the, you know, I know you owe me the money, but don't pay me the money, pay my foundation. And that, that's legal as long as Trump pays income tax on it because that's called assignment of income. If you're assigning the income that's due to you to your foundation, it's still income to you. And so the question then became, was Donald Trump paying income tax on this money? Um, and that was one of many times that they sent uh, this guy, Boris Epstein, who is now a TV commentator. He, w- he would occasionally res- – normally they didn't respond. But when they had something really, like, very on shaky ground to, to say to me, they would send Boris out to say it. And he said that Donald Trump in all t- – I, you know, I, I said, okay, well, is Donald Trump been paying taxes on this? And he said, Donald Trump at all times has been adhering to this 1927 Supreme Court decision governing the assignment of income. Just odd to think that Donald Trump would have like, constantly been keeping in mind an obscure Supreme Court decision from 1927, but that's, that was it. But what happened was always that people would say, Donald, I owe you this much money. And he would say, well, forget it. You don't owe me anything. You just give that money to a charity of your choice. And that miraculously, they would give the money to the Trump Foundation every time. Um, and I said, are you sure that was always the case? And Donald Trump never said, okay, you owe me this money, pay it to my foundation. And Boris said, prove me wrong. And then I did. Uh, I, I, I knew a particular example where he had taken money from Comedy Central for a roast and assigned it to uh, his charity. And I was like, okay, well, he did it this time. And Boris was like, okay, well, prove me wrong again. Uh, <laughs> so so th- that, we figured that part of it out, but I never figured out the McMahon part. And I, I still would love to know what the answer is there. We're getting pretty close to the end. Have any uh, any more questions, sir? Thanks for coming. Uh, were there any real threats that you faced? Um, and what uh, what were you done without the crowdsourcing? Uh, the, the I don't think I faced nearly as much threats or danger as the people who were actually out following Trump around on the trail. I mean, people who actually went to his rallies, especially female reporters, got so much more abuse than I ever did. There was one instance where I went on. After the Access Hollywood tape, I went on Fox News. I was only on Fox News a couple of times last year, and I went on, and the Fox News hosts were great. They asked me great questions about the story. They were very even-handed. Um, and then I got back to the office, and um, a guy in Milwaukee uh, who was drunk, uh, we know that because he told the FBI he was drunk, uh, called, my, called the Post, and we don't have a receptionist, like a human receptionist on the weekends. We only have uh, like a computerized voicemail system. And so he slurred my name into the voicemail system, and it directed him to a guy named Des Beeler, who works in sports. It didn't get David Farenthal at all. And so he left a death threat from me on that guy's voicemail, um, which then that guy forwarded it to the, um, to the HR. Like, to the, you know, the voicemail came to him. He sent it to HR, and HR called the FBI, the D.C. police. Um, they were great. They actually sent this person to my house, this um, She'd been a South African police commander, uh, had done, like, uh, embassy security in Tanzania, and came to my house to, like, give it a security 
you know, in case this guy from Milwaukee was going to come try to kill me, um, to give it like a security review. And it was like, I mean, she was saying things like, well, it's, she would look out the windows of my house. It's too far away for a car bomb. They'll <laughs> <laughs> probably just cut your brake lines. <laughs> look for puddles. Uh, so that, they, that turned into a big deal because it got to the HR department, but that was really the only kind of thing that I had. Um, other people faced a lot more. The question about crowdsourcing, I mean, there's a lot of things that happen in that story, some really big parts of that story that I wouldn't have gotten without crowdsourcing. And I, I you know, if I, I mean, the one example where we found this painting that Trump had bought of himself, you know, with charity money, and it's illegal to use a charity's money to buy art for your bar, and we found it on the, bar, on the wall of the bar at the Doral Resort that he owns. Like, at the beginning of that day, I just knew that there was a painting and I had a picture of it, but I didn't know where in the world it was or if he'd burned it or buried it or whatever. And to try to do that, to find it the old-fashioned way, I could have sent stringers to all the Trump hotels that are open, but there's a lot of clubs that aren't open. It could have cost me, like, days and lots of money, and I could have found nothing. Um, but then a, a reader in Atlanta just happened to spot it on the TripAdvisor page for Doral. That's how we knew it was there. Uh, you know, if, if it hadn't been for her knowing to look there, I never would have found it. So... Yeah, there's so many things that I just wouldn't have been able to do, uh, you know, leads that I wouldn't have been able to get if it wasn't for, for Dave, crowdsourcing. David was a very brave reporter during this whole time because I was constantly cyberbullying him on Twitter, <laughs> and, he, and I could never get him to crack. So uh, he's a lesson to all of us. Uh, well, any more questions? You know, we had, we had shrunk back before Bezos bought us to, you know, we, we were four and about Washington. We're going to have a big metro staff that covers Washington, and if there's something that happens in Washington, you know, people who live in other parts of the country or the world would read us for, like, coverage of Congress or the federal government. But if, like, there's a tornado in Alabama or a horrible tragedy that happens somewhere else in the country, we're not going to cover it the way we used to. Bezos said, no, we, you know, we want to be, if you are a Washington Post reader, everything that's newsworthy should be at WashingtonPost.com. If you, want to, you shouldn't have to leave us to go read about things you're interested in. So we had people who work overnight, you know, reporting on things around the world so that when you wake up in the morning, there's a Washington Post written story, often aggregated story, but sometimes based on phone calls to people who are up in the middle of the night um, about whatever happened. You know, we're going to have, we're going to cover things around the world, but we're going to, you know, the old way was, if there was a tornado in Alabama, how do we cover it? We would send somebody to Alabama to write about it. Well, that would take a day to get there, and they'd have to report. So instead, we're going to have somebody who's in Washington do it from their desk and do as, much, do as good of a job as they can. So that kind of content that we didn't used to present, is a, we have a lot of that now, and I think people really respond well to it. The mapping question, I think that's been a little slower. We still have so much of the paper is built on sort of a story model. I'm going to write a story about this, and then I'm going to Maybe I'll get graphics to help me do a graphic, or I'll ask the photo department to take photos. The idea that you would do a story that was like first and foremost uh, a map or a list or a, things like that. There's some people like Philip Bump who do, do a really good job doing that all the time, but it's not like we still are. If you want to do something that's not based on a, a story with paragraphs um, and a lead and a, and a kicker and all that sort of stuff, if you want to do something that doesn't have that as a piece of it, sometimes it's hard to like sort of work the bureaucratic process. So the notebook, I had to do the notebook. And just list pictures on Twitter for like a month or two before we decided, oh, wait, we should have a digital notebook. We should have a version of this that's online. So I think we're still slower to do that, and I'm trying to think of opportunities to sort of put that into practice. Um, can I get a show of hands of um, people from papers where there's a Trump golf course or hotel or other commercial interests <laughs> besides Washington? Mm -hmm. We've got Washington mm -hmm. and Florida. I would encourage you, if you see any great Trump tip or, or question mark, send it to David um, and um, help, help a poor boy win another Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> Thanks so much for attending. Thank you. That wasn't so bad. Next time on It's All Journalism. One journalist who works for an alt-weekly, the Santa Fe reporter, Aaron Contu, is facing 70 years for moving along with a group of people that he was covering and being charged with the alleged crimes of the people he's covering. That is tremendously dangerous for journalism. So I think my takeaway is that we're on shakier ground than ever and need to be more vigilant. Join us next time when our old friend Baynard Woods of the Baltimore City Paper stops by to talk about his latest venture, a great little podcast called Democracy in Crisis. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. 
You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, I've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a down and dirty guide to podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time for you to start your podcast? While you're on our website, leave a comment or send us an email at editor at itsalljournalism.com. We're always looking for new guests and topics for the podcast. We also like to get feedback on how we can improve the podcast and make it a better experience for you. You can also reach out to us on Twitter, at All Journalism, and you can look for us on Facebook. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The Finish the Game Podcast with your host, Sean Alexander. Draw play to Sean across the 10, the 5, touchdown Seahawks. Hey, this is Sean Alexander, NFL MVP. Check out my podcast, Finish the Game, where I discuss sports and life lessons helping you become an MVP. The Finish the Game Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast D.C.